0: So we ask the Lord to bless His people with the knowledge of the Scriptures, to impress us with truths. We need to hear the Lord speak to us, and we need direction. And I invite your attention this morning uh, with that preface to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'd like to read verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we've got some Pew Bibles, I think it's around page 197 in your Pew Bibles. I'll tell you, this scripture here, uh, as we read it, we want to be reminded of several things. In fact, I'd like to just maybe back up to verse 39 of the previous chapter. We want to make note, as we recall this, that it's in the context of uh, the great chapter 11 when uh, numeri- uh, uh, a, a numerous amount of uh, folks mentioned in terms of their faith. But in particular, this chapter and verse has great application to uh, counseling, in a sense. In other words, wherever you are along life's pathway, this scripture is a great counselor to you. We need the counsel of the word as we sang in that one hymn called after our brother Edmund. Uh, we need the Lord's counsel. And I'll tell you, this scripture here that I'll use for our text, verses 1 and 2 of the twelfth chapter. I believe will suit you very well no matter where you may be. It's a great text for us. How to live. Uh, how do we live in context of what's going on around us? What's important? What's the most important aspect of our life? And so let's read verses 39, 40 of the previous chapter. Remember, make note, when we read uh, in the New Testament these various Uh, Separations of chapter like 11, 12, and so on, they're not there in the original. So, when the Hebrews received the letter from the apostle, whoever wrote it, uh, there was no distinctions, there was no numbering, there wasn't verse 39, 40, and so on. The translators installed that for us. It adds, it's a help memory wise, you know, a help where to find where the preacher is speaking to you from. So, There are study aids and things like that. Um, So, verse 39 says, And these all, speaking of those who were enumerated in this great chapter of faith, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Special note there. What they did not have, we do today. And by being together with them, both Old and New Testament saints, we are perfected, one man in Christ. Wherefore, one of the greatest wherefores in the Bible. It's a transitional term. It's conveying something. Everything that has been previously said now has come to an important conclusion. Wherefore, think about all those brethren that have been mentioned. Wherefore seeing now, here's the context in which our view is, our perspective, as we consider this great Scripture. Here's the view, like the, the song we had just previously sung. Uh, the view and the perspective in which we sit is we're viewing the cross. Who for the joy that was set before Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of Of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And we'll end right there. According to uh, the scholars, those in the know, uh, there's two things that they don't know about the book of Hebrews, who wrote it, who was the author of it, and when it was written. Now, I've got my suspicions as to who maybe have written the book of Hebrews, but it's not that critical uh, because I can be ambivalent as to it uh, myself. Uh, I can read the last four or five, six verses of the whole book, and I can immediately assume that it was the Apostle Paul. It looks so similar how he ends the book. But if you look at the beginning, it's totally different than the beginning of his other epistles. And so, there's a lot of ambivalence to uh, me and my own particular feeling as to who may have authored this book. Martin Luther, that great German theologian, if you will, he thought that Apollos wrote it. Others uh, thought Barnabas wrote the epistle here to the Hebrews. So, we really don't know. And some of the greatest theological minds uh, ever to grace this earth by God's grace... I uh, really didn't have a conclusive uh, uh, bottom line as to who possibly have wrote it. I did a study on a phrase in the book of Hebrews, let us. It's used a lot of times in the book of Hebrews. And I compared it with the usage of let us in Paul's epistles. And it's not even close. So, you know, in other things, for instance, uh, the God of peace, for instance, is a phrase used in the book of Hebrews... Paul is the only other one that used that phrase. And so, you know, I'm going back and forth. But here's my concluding thing about who might have written the book of Hebrews. Either Paul or someone very close to him. Maybe some follower of his, some student of his. But it doesn't matter because the book doesn't bear the author's name. The important thing is that it was given with a particular point of view toward the Hebrew Christians. Probably somewhere prior to uh, the demise or the total destruction of Jerusalem which took place in 70 AD. The reason being is that these Hebrews, these Christians now, were warned against going back to the Old Testament covenant law service. By looking to that, they would remove their eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is presented as the fulfillment of of all the figures and the shadows that were part of the Old Testament service, which by and large uh, were presented for us previous to this chapter in the book of Hebrews. In fact, there's two major divisions in the book of Hebrews. The first major division, which is a doctrinal division, probably goes all the way up to the 10th chapter and ends at verse 18. And then after that, we have what is practical. And so that follows a lot or parallels a lot of the epistles that were written by Paul He would always enforce and lay out the foundational truths of doctrine first and foremost. And then he would adorn that doctrine of God through practical elements. And all of us here basically follow the same course, don't we? Isn't the fact of what we believe most prominent, you know, the doctrines of our faith? Aren't they the most important things that steer you in the direction in which you go? And then from that you learn how to apply those doctrines in a practical way. That follows suit almost all ways throughout the uh, characteristics of the New Testament writings. And so what we're here today for is in a practical sense, we're trying to figure out what it means in this scripture when it says, looking unto Jesus. And so in terms of looking unto Jesus, there's a few things that we need to make note in this analogy here to erase the Christian life and experience is like a race that we run. Paul mentions it elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're all, wraith- we're all running in this race. And then he reminds those to whom he writes that only one's going to receive the prize. It doesn't mean that you're running alone, does it? He said, let us. He's including himself. Let us run. And we're not alone in this thing. Sometimes we may think we're alone. And probably rightfully so. You know, sometimes we are alone, and the Lord teaches us that He alone is our Savior, that He alone is our helper, and He alone can answer our prayers. And sometimes we reach out to other people in great desperate times of need, but sometimes it's just a matter of gossip, isn't it? We just want to know the details. Fact is that our problems that we face must be levied at the feet of our Lord. Only He can be the real Helper in time of need. Unto the Lord will I look. And so, we're looking unto the Lord while we're running this race. He said, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run, run with patience. Now, we're not talking physically, are we? It's a term that refers to a metaphorical picture of the Christian life. Some of us are sleepy headed aren't we not uh, we're, we're not engaged in this thing are we we're doing this thing by the clock like we're punching in at work we're not really enveloped in our heart we're drawn to this by some other detail maybe it's a it's Sunday morning it's 1030 It's I have to be in church why because that's what my parents tell me some of you may be a deacon some may be members long standing members faithful members of the church but you don't know why you're here Well, let me remind you. You're here to worship God in truth and in spirit. You can't worship God outside of truth. If you behold a falsehood, if you believe a lie, that's not worship. That's vain worship. You may as well stay home watch television. Because you do the service of God no good. If you're serious about worship, part of running the race is laying aside certain things. Now, the image is back to uh, the Grecian Olympians. And uh, I hate to give you this image, but they probably ran close to naked. The fact is they wanted to lay away or lay off clothing that would hinder them. They wanted to lighten the load, so to speak, and run in order to win. And they did everything they could to lighten that load, to lay aside and that's a picture of the Christian. As he prepares for worship, he lays aside sins that so easily beset us. Now, what that sin may be, we don't know in the exact measure. We can assume that all sin, according to the Lord in John chapter 16, is the sin of unbelief. I don't care what you name, what kind of sin it may be, whether it's thought or practice, whether it's some sort of uh, uh, idealism, or whether it's an actual act, a word, all of it is unbelief before God. This sin of unbelief is the most dangerous of all sins. It's a sin that displays what our heart is by nature. Rebellious sinners at enmity with God, against God. We will not believe God by nature. Not only we will not, but we cannot. That's what we're dealing with. Light shines out of darkness... The new birth teaches us that, that we have this light in our heart, and it shines out of what? The thickness, the clouds of unbelief. Help, help me, Lord, help me. My unbelief is so powerful. I must deal with it every day. We're striving against sin of unbelief. It's no easy task. You can never get to a place where, okay, I'm, a, I'm past it now. I'm beyond it. No. It's a race, and we lay aside every sin that besets us. Now, obviously, the previous chapter highlights several of those who have failed. Moses, for instance, failed, did he not? He spoke angrily and hit the rock when God told him to speak to it. He was disobedient, and as a result, he could not enter into the land of Canaan. We think about Abraham, that one who the glory of God appeared to him. Here he was, Busy about serving idols in the land of Ur, of Chaldees. Oh, totally taken up with paganism. But God called him out. God called him out. But yet we see in Abraham's life on several occasions unbelief. Trusting in the flesh. Will it be Eliezer, my servant, in whom the heir promised to me by God Almighty? Will it be him? Or will it be maybe possibly Hagar, my concubine? Yes, Ishmael will be the result. Of the promise. No, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it is according to his mercy as the brother prayed. It is according to the word, the oath, the promise of God. And so we see in the lives of Abraham and 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 uh, Jacob. What can we say about Jacob? Jacob and the myriad of problems not only he had, but invested in his entire family. For the longest of times, we see Jacob, a wandering pilgrim, running from Esau, unbelieving in God, a conniver at best, and yet his name was changed by the grace of God. His name was changed because he would become a prince. He would become a prince of Israel. He would be devoted to God, but it came through a long time of chastisement. Yes, he returned. He did return. He was a prodigal son, if you will, and he was blessed blessed in, in, in God. But his sins were prevalent. But we see other people in this previous chapter that are numbered. Moses we mentioned. Abraham. Jacob. Listen to this, this crowd of, uh, of people here. Like David. David. What can we say about David and his wayward ways of adultery and murder. And those kind of things that would simply make us think that he would certainly not be uh, listed in this great chapter of faith. How about Gideon? How many do you know about Gideon, who at the end of his life was more about earrings of gold that the Ishmaelites gave him than about the business of God? And how about Jephthah, an illegitimate son, had no right to be a leader or a judge of Israel, cast out for his mother being a harlot, and yet he was a man of faith, a man of God? How about um, Barak, this man who insisted on listening to the judge who was Deborah, by the way, at that particular time. He was a faithful man, and he listened to the counsel of God. He wouldn't go out, in other words, on his own. He didn't go before the Lord. He waited patiently for the direction of God. And so we see good, we see some bad in here, but all around in that particular chapter, we see men who were beset easily by certain sins. Samson was named. Samson. Wine, women, and song was his weakness and we can see in his life what happened to him he failed at that sense because of his besetting sin and now paul excuse me the writer of hebrews the spirit of god is reminding each one each one of us right now to know that we must lay aside any of those besetting sins that so easily detract us from the service of god that's our business today and so the question I asked this morning, in what context are we living as children of God, as Christians? It's very demanding, isn't it? I know when the Lord first called you, when you were excited and you and you uh, reunited with the people of God at, a, at the church or whatever church you remember you were once uh, baptized to be a member of and you were excited, but little did you know at that particular time in your youthful experience in the terms of God's uh, calling. Little did you know what it meant to be crucified to the world and the world crucified to you. You didn't know yet that this path of Christian, Christianity was a narrow path, a difficult path. You didn't know, but the Lord brought you by very easily and gradually and learned in your heart the things of God. You became dear to the Lord. You learned to hate sin, you could see yourself, that darkness that prevailed, the unbelief in your heart, the sins that so easily besets you. And many times I can see, not only in my own heart, but many of my dear friends who have been at one point or another destroyed or came close to it by sin in, in our lives. But God spared us, did he not? He awakened us. He made us aware of our weaknesses. And he brought us through a path. And he put us upon the rock a solid rock, drawing us out of the Mari clay. We've all been there. We know the weakness and the infirmity of the flesh, the inability to perceive and to believe, to trust, be loyal to God. We're so stuck with this flesh. We feel indebted to the flesh. We want to work it out our own way. We want to serve God through the power of the flesh, and we find it's useless. It's useless. God won't have it. So God's going to take you through a course of time and He's going to work on you. It's a race, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, it's a long journey, if you will. Sometimes he wakes us out of our sleep. Sometimes he chastens us grievously. Things in our life and come to a sudden halt. Lives are changed. You know, circumstances are uprooted. Lose a job. Lose your health. Lose your loved ones. Lose everything you've ever loved. You find out that you have nothing else in the world. And the verse comes to you in your heart. As God spoke to Abraham, I am thy exceedingly great reward. I am the portion of your inheritance. You see, God will have you to learn that He is your all in all. You can't rely on anything else. I met with one young man recently, about ready to have surgery, and broke down and wept. He said, I'm all alone. I said, no, brother, you're not. God is with you. He's on the mountaintops and He's on the valleys. He teaches us that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Others may. Your own family may. But God will never forsake you. He is your exceeding great reward. Well, we're to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily beset us. And let us run with patience. You know, one of the members of the eleventh chapter was Isaac. Not much is said about Isaac, except early on in his life. His calling out of the womb. But, you know, and then of course when he was taken up on Mount Moriah to be sacrificed by Dad, you know, we're going up the mountain, we're gonna sacrifice. And he looks around and said, Dad, we got the wood we got everything we need for the sacrifice, but where is it? He said, you're it. But anyway, old Isaac, not much said about Isaac compared to the rest of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he crossed the finish line, did he? He crossed it because he crossed it through faith. Not his own, but through the faith God gave him. The power of God. Faith is what we're talking about here. We're living a life of faith. The context in which we live is not determined by our profession. I want to shock some of you here this morning. It's not determined by where you live, your identity. You might be in a small town, you might be very important in that town. You may be somebody, but your identity as a Christian is not determined by the context of your position, your township, your Business, Even politics. Some of you may be involved in politics. And rightfully so. You've got an agenda. You've got some ideals you want to put forth. And it's a good thing. A lot of good things. But as a Christian, you're defined by faith. You live a life of faith. And so in spite of what happens. In spite of your, the lack of what happens or the blessings of what happens. In spite of it. We walk and we live by faith. Anything else is materialism. We don't walk by sight. That's what materialism means. Well, we live our, con- our life in the context of walking by faith, just like our former brothers and sisters. They, lie- they laid aside every weight and sin that beset them, and they ran with patience the race that was set before them. The Lord Jesus Christ ran that race, did he not? He was the forerunner, mentioned there earlier on, I believe in the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. But in the Psalms 19, there's a scripture that denotes something that I wanted to share. I think it's Psalms 16. The Psalms are often conveying the work of the Lord. That was 19. 19. Look at this for a minute in terms of the Lord running a race. Now, He ran the race in in, in the sense that He took upon Himself the work of His Father. He performed the work. But listen to this. He was speaking about verse 4, Psalms 19. Their line is going throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them have set a tabernacle for the sun. And so, here's a picture of the heavens declaring the glory of God. And all the stars, all the stars are in the. In the, in the heavens and their, their speech is gone their voice gone out throughout all the end of the world in them he set a tabernacle for the sun now the sun here is a picture of Jesus we're looking unto Jesus as I mentioned in the book of Proverbs keep your eyes right on and your eyelids straight before thee we look right don't we Christ is set down at the right hand of all majesty. Well here we have the sun within the setting of the tabernacle. See all those stars are the setting of where he sits if you will. And he's coming forth. Verse 5 which is at a bridegroom which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as strong man to run a race. The Lord Jesus Christ ran the race for us. Now the race that we run is in response to what he's done for us. There's only one that could run his race, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. What he earned, you and I could not. He earned his reward and our salvation. All you and I do now is run in response to it. He's called us to run that race, it's set before us. He placed it, us upon that course. We run a course. That's what that race refers to. It's a course. And our course envelops our time as Christians in this world. And we're doing it. Some of us are undistracted. And we are faithful to the very end. I was reading this week about the story of Lady Jane Grey. And she was a queen of England. But it only lasted nine days. And of course in that particular period of time back in the 1500s, you know there was a lot going on in Europe between the Catholics and the Protestants. I mean, kingdoms fell and kingdoms rose, based on uh, uh, Catholicism or based on Protestantism. You know, it's not like us today. But there she was, because Edward, the, the sixth, or a distant cousin, preferred her over the next in line, which was Queen Mary, or excuse me, Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII. And she was a Catholic, but Lady Jane Grey was the Protestant. And since Edward favored Protestantism, he chose Lady Jane Grey. Wow, that was a wonderful thing. And, you know, she was a staunch believer in the gospel of the Reformation, if you will. And that was lighting up like wildfire running across Europe, opening up the hearts and minds of many. And so there was great division. But Mary, her sway led the way. And the people ultimately... Uh, supported her, and in the ninth day, old lady Jane Grant, I shouldn't say old, she was only 16 years old, sweet 16, she willingly laid her head on that block. She would not recant her faith. All she had to do is apologize. All she had to do is reverse what she did. All she had to do is take back, take back her confession of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and refusing Roman Catholicism, that's all she had to do. Just verbiage. Very simple. Just a mere confession. Take it back. But she would not. So she put the handkerchief over her own eyes. And she reached for the block. And she needed help to find it. And she laid her head down upon it. And she asked the swordsman to do what she did, he had to do quickly. And so she entered into glory, confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. She laid aside every weight and sin for the name of Christ. She looked unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of her faith. Are you willing to do that today? Are you going to walk lock and step with secularism, hedonism, the pleasures of this world? Old Moses, he refused, did he not? The pleasures of Egypt. He would rather take upon himself the reproaches of Christ. Because it had far greater recompense of reward. He, w- he would rather be number- numbered with the people of Christ. That's who they were in the Old Testament. The people of the Christ. A nation who looked for the promise of the Messiah. He would rather be numbered with them sorry people. And they were a sorry bunch of people. There's no doubt about it. There was nothing good when you looked at the sorry bunch of people who were in bondage, enslaved in Egypt. And I'll tell you what, it's always been the course. And there's no different today in that sense. That you're numbered with the people that bear the reproach of the Lord Jesus Christ in the eyes of the world. You'll always be that way, I'll tell you. But it's a place to invest in because there's many happy returns. And it's a great bargain too. It's a great bargain. Compared to the world, it's a great bargain. Come, buy and eat without money. It's free to those who are thirsty. To those who have the Spirit of God in their hearts. You come and you buy and you eat. Feast upon the Lord. Enjoy Him. It costs you nothing. I remember a time when Jeremiah... During the days of the captivity of Nebuchadnezzar, he came down and besieged Jerusalem. I mean, he destroyed, uprooted, fires everywhere, houses plummeted, families destroyed. The land was worthless. But the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, You go ahead and buy that field. His uncle came to him and said, You're next in line, you're my kin. You it's your right, you buy my field, and so for seventeen shekels of silver, he bought that field, and it was a good deal. He invested low, but he gained high, did he not? <clears throat> you buy the truth and you sell it not because it's worth something. It's got what the world doesn't have. world doesn't have no truth. It's fleeting pleasures. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Here's an example. Evolution was very prominent in its day. They're holding on to that one, aren't they? Putting money into that one, trying to prop that one up. It's here today and gone tomorrow. The world doesn't have truth. They have philosophies. They're fleeting. Oh, I must run. I must run and move on. Look, what else do we do in this race? We, we, we run. Is that what the Scripture says? We run. So that what? We may attain. Look, at, look in uh, Philippians chapter 3. And I'll just ask you the question. What is it that we attain? If we're running this race, what's the reward? It's, it's a beautiful reward. Philippians chapter 3. This is one you want to read and make note of. Because it's not something far-fetched. It's not something that is unbelievable. It's not, it's not something that we, you know, it's not pie in the sky. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, this is what he says. He says, But what things were gained to me, those things I counted lost for Christ. Okay, his reputation, his professionalism, whatever he did. Now, I'm going to say this, and it's this very important, that God has placed us in the world. We're not of the world, we're in the world. That means we get along with everybody else. We do the things that we have to do. We're good doctors, we're good lawyers, we're good electricians, we're good homekeepers. Whatever we do, we do with all our might. That's what the scripture says. Whatsoever your hand findeth to do, you do it with all your might. You're honest before God and before men. You are equipped by God's grace to be the best at whatever you do. Okay, I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form, don't get me wrong, that while we're in the world, we still do the best. We educate ourselves, we work goals, we do things. But our priority is one thing and one thing mostly that we serve Christ and his kingdom. We put all things secondary to that. If it means that we must, for the sake of Christ and the honor of his word, depart from something that is contrary to his word, Because it's even in our business and we're making money and doing something wrong, we must turn our back against that, you see. So Paul here was an example of someone who must turn his back against Pharisaicalism, of being brought up to intimidate and persecute and place men and women in prison. God appeared to him and separated him from his mother's womb by the grace of God. He was separated from his nature's inclination he was awoke by the spirit of god and he said now those things that were once gained in me i count but loss notice this that i may win christ the reward for running our race is that we may win right now the lord jesus christ now our brothers and sisters of yesteryear they looked forward to the coming of christ but they did not and could not attain what we have today That's what it says there. It says, God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. They were not made perfect in the sense that they they did not receive the promise. The promise was the Christ, the Messiah, and that in Him all the families of the earth would be blessed. We are living proof, my brothers and sisters, of what the Lord did through Christ. You don't have to look for or living proof of it. That men and women out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation have been called out by God's sovereign grace, by His will, and you're called to be His children. You have now that second piece that puts together the puzzle so that now together they and us are made perfect in one in Christ This is wonderful. All right, we're moving forward. Let's let's look at what we have to do. We're looking unto Jesus. He's the author and the finisher. I want you to think about that for a minute. Somebody asked the question, did Jesus have faith? We certainly had faith. He was the author of it. And he was the finisher. He was the author of our faith. Now, what we have is this principle in us that's life. And it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is faith? It's the substance of things hoped for. By it, they, our former brethren in the Old Testament, obtained a good report. And they obtained it through hell, Through figures of Christ, who was to come. Through shadows. We have today the substance. We have the promise. He has come. He has completed salvation. That's why he's the author and he's the finisher of our faith. Always remember that. Now, that phrase, through faith, may be presented in the New Testament in a variety of ways. But it's all by Jesus. You can say it the same way. The Lord Jesus Christ. The power in you is the power of Christ himself. So we look unto Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. I understand that in the history of this great country, the first people that ever got to see the Pacific Ocean were in the group of Lewis and Clark Expedition. They went from the east all the way west. They went through the hills, the mountains, the Rockies. They had to endure dangers. Tremendous. But you could say they were pioneers. They were the first Americans to travel that path. To see things and write down things that no one has ever seen before. The Lord Jesus Christ is a pioneer of faith. Because he believed in God. He certainly did, did he not? Look at the cross, because that's the setting we find ourselves. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross now I know that cross was a terrible thing if you look at it from the physical standpoint. Bible says he was hit over the head with a reed. Now, a reed, what's a reed? I think the closest thing for us to understand what a reed may be is uh some of these uh what's this these long growth that we see these these reeds that grow long. What's that called that plant? Any what is it? Vines, cattails, or something else. Bamboo. Bamboo. That's exactly what I was thinking about. It's hollow in the center. The core is hollow. But the outside of it is very hard. That's what you think about when you think about that which was hit over the head of our Lord. And so from a physical standpoint, he certainly suffered above any man in that sense. His visage was marred more than that of any man, the Bible says. But most importantly, and most dramatically was the separation that he endured uh, from his father for having taken upon himself a just penalty for our sin. He stood in our place, the just for the unjust. He took our sin upon himself, the elect, the sin of God's people. And by it, he suffered the wrath and the judgment of God. And by it, he was separated from his father. That was the price that he paid. But if you look closely, you can see those who derided him and mocked him Spit at him, Raised their fist at him, and at this one particular point, both, both the uh, the uh, thieves were in the same mockery against the Lord, same in their teeth against him. And the Scripture says at that same time that one of the scribes, the elders of the religious folks, they said he trusted God. That's what what I want you to get. You see, he had faith. That means he had faith in God at that particular time. He looked unto his heavenly Father. Now, the Bible adds more to it here when it says, who for joy that was set before him. Because this doesn't make sense from our vantage point. Of all that he suffered, how is it that he could have joy That's hard to envision. But the Scriptures tell us a few things about that, I believe. I believe the Bible says that the meat, He said His meat was to do the will of His Father. See, I believe our Lord looked with joy in accomplishing and doing the will of the Father. He came down to the sin-cursed earth to do the will of the Father which sent Him. And this is the Father's will, He said, that of all which He hath given Me, I should lose nothing. But raise it up again at the last day. You see the joy that was set before the Lord? He endured the suffering of the cross because of the joy in knowing He was doing the Father's will. But there's something else there too. I believe there was joy in beholding the children of God. I want you to think about this for a minute. You might think, as the Lord on the cross could see the people of God, a mass number of people, like the sand of the sea and maybe the stars of the heaven. That's the scriptural terminology for it. And by the way, the sands of the seashore and the stars of heaven relate two different things. The sands of the sea relate to our humanity. Oh, yes, it's a number which no man can number, but it relates to who we are, sand, Wind driven. Easily moved by the ocean. Nothing. Worth nothing in that sense. We're likened to sand. But we're also likened to the stars of heaven. Secure. They've been there forever. Unmovable. That's the work of God. But in any case, we can see that the Lord's people were on His heart and they were a motivation of joy for Him. We say, Brother Steve, where do you find that? Well... I can say this much in Luke chapter 10 when the i I'll just share with you when the when the disciples the 70 came back after he had sent them out they came back and they were happy they were joyful and why were they joyful because they said the spirits the demons are subject unto us I mean they were casting out devils they were doing all kinds of work and they were just really excited and you know what the lord said he said I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven What's he doing? He's thinking about the purpose of the cross. Because at the cross, judgment would be handed out to Satan in a terrible blow. Yes, death, hell, and Satan were destroyed at the cross, you see, in the fulfillment of his work. And so the Lord was thinking ahead. And then he went on to say this. He said, rejoice not. Rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I'll tell you something, in John chapter 10, the scripture says that the shepherd knows them by name. When the Lord went to the cross at Calvary, He didn't see a glob of people out of every kindred. He saw you individually. He knew your name. The infinite, wise, eternal God had every elect child of God's name written there on his heart. And in Psalms 147 and verse 4, I believe it is, he tells the stars all by name. He knows every one of those stars by name and he knows his people. He numbers them by name. We're likened to the stars of heaven. If that doesn't excite you, nothing I say will. The Bible is so true. The joy that was set before the Lord were you, his people. That's why he endured the cross. So I will save my people. When he looked at Peter and the weakness and the infirmity of a man like Peter to believe in him. He didn't shake his head and said, I'm just going to quit on these people. He loved them to the end and having loved them, he loved them to the uttermost. There's another joy I believe the Bible teaches. There's a joy of this. It says in our text that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What joy was he thinking about now here's the text I want to show you I believe it's in Psalm 16 this particular scripture was mentioned by Peter on the day of Pentecost and he made mention of the fact that he was not referring to David that he was referring to the Lord Jesus Christ when he said for Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption he's talking about the grave but the fulfillment The actual application of this, according to Peter, and according to this text, which I will show shortly, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. What's he talking about? He's talking about faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, enduring the cross by faith. Seeing His Father, doing His will, seeing His people, loving His people, knowing what He's going to accomplish for them. I'm going to give them salvation. I'm going to obtain eternal redemption for them. I'm going to deliver them from the power of death and darkness and sin, the consequences of which are horrible judgment, eternal forever and ever. I'm going to deliver my people from the wrath of hell. That was the joy of His heart. But watch this. He says, for thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At the right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He could see where he would sit down enthroned at the right hand of all majesty. He could see it there at the cross. That's why he endured it with patience. He did it lovingly and willingly. And he did it for you and me. I'll tell you, I'm going to just close this. And say this, that this is a life of faith. We're on this road all together, and we're walking by faith. And as we do, we're looking. We're looking up. We're not looking at others, are we? We're looking up. We're not looking at the racetrack. We're looking up. Don't look at the racetrack. I've ran. I know what it's like to run a marathon. You can get distracted very easily. You've got to keep your eyes on focus. Keep your eyes on focus. Keep your eyes on the prize. There's times when you're running a race, people jar it out and try to give you water and upset you. You know what it's like. And you get off your rhythm. you got to stay focused because it's a race. Now, it's not a round track. It's not flat. That's easy. It's an obstacle course. It's cross country. There's uphills. There's down valleys. There's through water, deep, billowing waters. Scary waters. Frightening waters. When you have to lay on that flat table because you need surgery on your heart, that's what I'm talking about. Nobody else can help you in that particular time. Nobody. But I'll tell you what God gives you. He gives you faith. And you look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher. Now I got a warning for all of you. Primitive baptists are the most guilty people of all the face on the earth of putting people, of men in places of high esteem, making somebody look special. And it I can't stand it. Now when you look at somebody and you prop we're guilty of propping people up, ministers, Making somebody special. And then when they fall, you're discouraged. How can that happen? How can that happen? You're looking at the man. You're not looking unto Jesus. Now all those brethren, of which we mentioned earlier, like Gideon and David and Moses and Abraham, we're not looking at their achievements or their sin. We're looking at their faith. We're looking at what they looked at. They looked toward the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we can do things in the name of our religion, if you want to say it that way, and we can get billboards, up on billboards and lights, and people write about us, and people put pictures about us in the papers, and it's not right. They make somebody at us nothing, you see. All flesh is grass. I'm telling you to have a realistic view of your brothers and sisters and don't put them on a pedestal because you'll be disappointed. We're all human, you see. And I'm trying to tell you not to walk by sight, but by faith. Have faith in Christ. Look unto Him. He is the author and finisher of your faith. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. May the Lord bless you this morning. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.